Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jeanette Cockroft, and I am... The uh, I am the host of this channel. Today, we're talking with Michelle C. Smith, who is the author of the new book, Utopian Genderscapes, Rhetorics of Women's Work in the Early Industrial Age. And so welcome, Michelle C. Smith, to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. Um, let's start, Michelle, with your telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I grew up in um, a small town, um, Marietta, Ohio. It's a little town on the Ohio River right on the border with West Virginia. Um, and my parents were both political science professors. So I sort of um, grew up with academia as a um in the home, around the home, etc. Um, and my sister, who the book is dedicated to. Um, so um, that's that's where I grew up. Um, I went to college at the University of Richmond in Virginia. Um, that's where I studied English and sort of first really got into um, English. And I studied women's studies, was a part of a women's and gender sort of leadership program there called Will, um, which is still going. It's a great place. Um, and I got interested in um, what became my field of rhetoric and composition by working in the Writing Center at Richmond as a tutor. And um, I was um, did some individual tutoring and was assigned to some English classes to do some work with the students on their writing. Um, and that is when I learned that people who run writing centers get educated in rhetoric and composition. Um, and so when I was finished with my undergraduate degree, I applied to rhetoric and composition programs and ended up getting my master's and PhD at Penn State um, in the English department there, but with the concentration in rhetoric and composition. So 
that's a little bit about, yeah, where I, where I came from and how I got where I went. <laughs> that's really interesting. So tell us, where does this book come from? How did you happen to write this? So um, my interest in utopian communities or intentional communities um, was sort of sparked by a couple of different things. I did um, some research projects with faculty as kind of a research assistant as an undergraduate working on utopian literature. Um, and when I was in college, my women's studies class visited an intentional community in Twin Oaks, Virginia, and I had never um, been to um, such a place in person. So that was very interesting to me, just a one day visit, but it stuck with me. Um, and then the summer after my junior year in college, I stayed in a co-housing community um, outside Washington, D.C. Um, the community is called Blueberry Hill. And, you know, I also in my small town in Ohio had not really seen co-housing or other kind of models for living around me very much. So all of those experiences, but especially that summer, um, I lived with a family in that community. I saw how, um, you know, they this was a community where they owned the land jointly, but everyone owned their individual houses. So, you know, they sort of had a mix of things they shared in common and then things that were sort of kept more privately. Pretty much everyone worked outside the community. Lots of people worked in D.C. Um, but, you know, two or three times a week, they'd meet in the common house and have a meal there instead of everyone having to prepare their meals separately. And um, they... Um, to, did sort of outside lawn maintenance and things like that sort of communally rather than everyone owing, owning their own lawnmower. And um, they had the parking lots at the edges of the community so that the whole rest of the place was kind of a safe middle ground for children to run around and not worry about getting hit by cars. And um, just everything about the community, I was really struck by what was possible when you made intentional choices like this, not only for yourself or your immediate family, but with other people who had shared goals with you. So um, that's where I got excited about that. And when I was a graduate student at Penn State studying feminist rhetorics, I knew that was going to be my area um, with my background in gender studies and everything. But when I was thinking about topics that I found myself drawn to consistently that I might sort of look at from a feminist rhetorical perspective, um, the intentional communities came to mind and I love the 19th century. So <laughs> fortunately, that's a time when there's a lot of interesting things going on with utopian communities. So that is, um, yeah, sort of, sort of the beginning of the book. That sounds, that sounds like a really extraordinary opportunity for a young woman. I always like it when I, when I see people's research coming out of their life experiences. That strikes me as being not just very cool, but also really meaningful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how it felt for me. I mean, when I was you know, I knew that as a scholar of rhetoric, rhetoric is so interdisciplinary that, um, and, and, you know, lots of disciplines are very interdisciplinary, but rhetoric, you know, my, my advisors were telling me, like, you could write about almost anything, you're going to bring this rhetorical perspective to it. And so I said, like, yeah, what, like, what is it that I want to write about? 
Um, and, you know, in, in picking a dissertation topic, I knew this was something I was going to be living with for a long time, maybe even longer than I might have imagined. Um, and um, yeah, I wanted something where my, it wasn't just a sense of like, oh, the field wants this or the field needs this or this is really popular right now, but sort of a like, where do I have that intrinsic sort of desire and curiosity? Um, and and gender is something I have intrinsic desire and curiosity about. And so is history. And so are utopias. So um, that is how that worked. That's wonderful. It's the best possible graduate experience. It is. Yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> and I um, said intentional communities to my advisor, who I'm sure had, she said, that sounds great, Michelle. What's an intentional community? <laughs> well, that's a good place to start. What yeah. <laughs> is an intentional community? So I use utopian community and intentional community pretty interchangeably. Um, neither of those terms would have been recognizable to the individuals in the 1840s um, in the communities I study. They might have called what they were doing communal living or communalism, um, but those terms are a little vague today. And people, they might have even called it communism, and that term definitely confuses people today or sends them down the wrong path. Um, so we sort of have to have an anachronistic term here. Um, so utopian community conveys what I mean. It's the most recognizable in a popular sense. Like you know, if I'm chatting with somebody at a bar, you know they're. Utopian community will tell them what I'm looking at. Um, but individuals living in these kinds of communities now favor the term intentional community um, because there's the stigma with utopia, right? I mean, in, in this, um, maybe the last century and a half or so, but the 20th century and into the 21st century, there's a stigma that utopia is about perfection and it's about perfection at any cost, right? And it's about one... Um, often an authoritarian group or maybe leader, right, sort of imposing their perfect world on other people and making them fall in line. And so utopia now actually is pretty synonymous with dystopia for a lot of people. Um, and so sometimes when I would say I'm studying utopian communities, people would say like, oh, like cults. And I was like, well, you know, <laughs> I, I try to have a, a more open and nuanced view about the motivations that might have led people to choose uh, to join these kinds of communities. So I go back and forth between them. Utopian gets across what I'm talking about, intentional sort of honors, um, again, the people choosing those kinds of um, living situations today, the things that got me so interested in them and dodges some of that utopian stigma. So that I go back and forth there. Um, but, you know, kind of like I said earlier, an intentional community um, the concept of an intentional community is based in the idea that some things you might want for your life can't be achieved solely on your own or in family units, um, but must be achieved by living amidst other people who share those goals. Um, generally, it does involve sharing things in common, but what exactly is shared um, varies a lot by community, you know? So um, like I said, the co-housing community I was in um, Actually, you know, if you didn't know it was a co-housing community and you visited one of the families living in one of these houses, it would look pretty sort of typically suburban, except they don't have garages attached to their homes, you know, um, and you would have to sort of like look a little deeper to see the what's happening there, right? Um, but 
you know, other communities are more are um, committed to self subsistence, you know, they, um, yeah, may practice a particular religion, they share childcare, income, their material goods, you know, so there's a whole range of practices that fall under that intentional community label. So let's talk about the three communities that you focused on in your book, right? Brook Farm, Harmony Society, and the Oneida community. So why don't you start by telling us why you chose each of those? Mm -hmm. So the Harmony Society, um, I chose when I was a graduate student beginning to study these things. I didn't have a lot of funding um, for things like archival research. And so this was really one of the first communities I studied. And I found out that their archives, um, you know, having grown up in Ohio, being in school in Pennsylvania, I was familiar with the area and their archives were um, just a couple hours away outside of Pittsburgh um, from where I was in the middle of the state in school. And so um, I thought, you know, I, I first tackled um, that archive for a seminar paper um, in a historiography class I was in. And um, it really, I was, you know, once I got into it, I said, like, this is what I want to be doing. Um, and there were really interesting things happening there, particularly with the granddaughter of the founder of the community. And this is a, a community that lasted just over a century. So a very um, long-lived um, community compared to most others. Um, and um, But the granddaughter of the founder sort of became uh, an important figure in the community and gained some not- notoriety outside the community for her work making silk. Um, so that, that kind of drew me in. And then um, the other communities I study, I study... Um, Brook Farm, um, I had read Nathaniel Hawthorne's um, book based on Brook Farm as a college student. It was one of those sort of early, um, you know, um, early connections I made sort of between utopian literature and actual utopian communities. Um, And so it was familiar to me as sort of an, an English literature and rhetoric person. Um, and so, and it's a very popular community, you know, it's, it's better known now than a lot of the historical communities from this time period. So I chose that one as my second one. I was excited about its association with transcendentalism, which I thought had important, um, had a lot of promise for women. It had a lot of women involved, um, in, Um, that movement. And so I said, like, if I would be hoping to see interesting things going on with gender, this seems like a likely spot. Um, And then, um, and the dissertation, I wrote about the uh, Neshoba community in Tennessee, which um, was founded by Frances Wright, who was an early public speaker. And so I had learned about her in studying women's rhetoric and then discovered that this woman's rhetorician had founded an interracial utopian community in Tennessee. And I thought like, well, this is fabulous. But then once I got into it, um, the problem with Frances Wright's community was that it was Um, so controversial at the time that basically all records have been raised to the ground. It was very short-lived. 
very controversial. Um, there were rumors of the races mixing, um, you know, but she, so it was a very interesting community, but um, what really is extant, what we still have from it are sort of her ideas and goals for it. And then, you know, ahead of time, like how she was trying to sell it to people um, like Jefferson when she visited him, <laughs> um, you know, so as she was making the rounds, um, she was trying to raise money for the community. We sort of have that vision, but we don't have much of what actually happened when the community came together, except that it caused a hue and a cry and um, fell apart pretty quickly. So when I, you know, I, I wrote that as a dissertation chapter, but I knew that, um, you know, I just wasn't able to do the same kind of archival excavation that was really important to me. Um, and so when I was revising um, the book and returning to the book project, um, I swapped that chapter out and have a new chapter on the Oneida community in upstate New York, which in the meantime, I mean, Oneida was also was very well known at the time and is slightly better known now probably than the Harmony Society, at least um, not as well known as Brook Farm. Um, but the Oneida community was also very interesting in terms of gender because they practiced an early form of birth control and um like had some of the sort of explicit claims about wanting men and women doing the same kinds of work and things like that, that I had sort of expected to find in Brook Farm. <laughs> um, but I actually found in this, um, you know, also very controversial community. So I swapped one controversial community for another one, <laughs> um, but one with, with a lot more archives um, and archives that were locked for a long time until recently because the descendants of the members of the community um, didn't want like the Oneida flatware company and other things associated with, uh, you know, um, some of what had gone on in the community. So I kept the controversy, but um, a lot more archival material um, at Syracuse in, in the Syracuse Library in New York, just tons and tons of material there to work with. So that was a little better fit for me in the end. But at some point, I'm going to go back to Frances Wright and give her some attention and see if I can do something with that material, because she was such a fascinating figure, even if her community um, didn't last long enough to leave the kinds of traces I would need, you know, for this Absolutely. particular project. Absolutely. Now, why focus on women's labor? That's a big part of this analysis. So can you talk about that a little bit? So the dissertation, um, I was very interested in rhetoric and space and rhetorics of space in these communities, again, partly from my time, my own time in the co-housing community and sort of seeing the layout of the community and how the kitchens were at the front of all the houses, because that's where people spend time. And so you'd be more likely to, you know, see your neighbors were home and pop in and say hi, if their kitchen was at the front of the house instead of the back and those kinds of notions. And so I was very excited about space. Um, and there was lots of really interesting work happening in rhetorical studies around space and gender um, at the time. And so that seemed like sort of a useful lens, but it was also a very broad lens um, in terms of what's happening with space and gender in these communities. Um, and so really by the end of the dissertation, 
I kind of knew what the dissertation should have been about, <laughs> you know, um, which is um, that like when at least in the 19th century, but I would argue in a lot of times and places um, when we think when we talk about gender and space, we end up talking about labor, you know, um, spaces are really understood in terms of what kinds of bodies we think are supposed to be there and what kinds of practices with labor or leisure we think they should be doing there. Um, and so uh, it really, once I, that sort of clicked in my head as so I was listening to a conference presentation, someone else was giving somewhere and I was like, it's about women's work. That's what this is about. Um, and I realized, well, yeah, I'm talking about Gertrude Rapp and the Harmony Society and the work she did. And I'm talking about in the, you know, the silk um, industry that she led. And I'm talking about Brook Farm and like their battles over who was going to do the housework and could housework be noble the way that they wanted to believe labor could be. Um, like, and I just realized that thread was already, and I mean, Francis Wright, you know, looking at the dissertation, Francis Wright's community was trying to end slavery, right? So if that's not about labor, I don't know what, you know, I was like, this is all about labor. <laughs> you know? um, and so that's how I kind of came to that focus. And I also realized that um, I needed to do more work than to try to understand what was happening with labor, um, you know, in the country writ large, um, to, in order to reflect on what was unique or not about what was happening in these communities. So I knew that was the big task for the book revision was sort of that broader context in order to kind of um, put these communities in relief, you know, against that background. But um, once I clicked into place, it just it made a lot of sense to me. And the focus on uh, rhetoric of women's work has also been really interesting within the field of rhetorical studies because um, feminist rhetoricians have spent a lot of time looking at, you know, social movements women have been involved in as a way they came to voice suffrage, temperance, um, you know, um, women's activism in education, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and it seemed like there was this sort of, we're, we're very interested in this sort of civic and political roles of women, but we actually hadn't spent much time looking at women's economic situation, which is, of course, also an important part of gender oppression and gender relations is, you know, economics. Um, and so, when I reached that, I also, once I turned, once I realized my project wanted to be about women's work, I sort of said, and you know, actually, like, maybe this, this economic realm is something that, uh, you know, deserves more attention generally, because we know that getting the vote didn't actually immediately overturn, right? <laughs> gender inequality, gender hierarchies, etc. So, um, it seems, you know, and and if we want to understand the factors that matter in women's lives, of course, getting the vote matters in women's lives, but also, you know, having a roof over your head, being able to care for yourself or your family, you know, these things also matter. So absolutely. Now, in the context of each of these communities, you talk about uh, work in a very specific sort of way, right? So, you know, for example, when you were talking about Brook Farm, as you just noted, it's, a, it's about housework. So let's explore that because I think that's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I sort of realized, I, well, I didn't want to define work as work outside the home um, because this already, I mean, you know, like the 
the definitional or boundary work that we do in all of our disciplines, you know, when we define rhetoric as, you know, public speechifying in front of large audiences, then we limit where we can look. And then we say, oh, we didn't find a lot of women, but that's not really that surprising. You know, <laughs> we, we sort of tie our hands a little bit. So in thinking about work, I really wanted to think about from a rhetorical perspective, like what makes an activity credible as work? What makes something count as work? Um, And I thought that to do that, we needed to look at some of the different forms of labor people do um, that are or are not in different times or different situations considered, you know, real work, right? Um, Given credit as work. Um, So, Um, I focus on how, you know, also, of course, I'm shaped by the kinds of work women were doing in these communities. And the women at Brook Farm, um, you know, were not riveting, right? They were not not, um, involved in intense industrial labor. So that wasn't an opportunity to look at that particular kind of labor. But they were very interested in, like I said before, in these questions about um, this the transcendental ideal, which said that all work is um, has value and is ennobling to the laborer. Um, and the women said, you know, you're telling me this, but yet you're not helping do the dishes still. <laughs> you know, so um, they they certainly felt a sort of lived conflict, right, between what was being espoused and um, their own experience of their labor and the division of labor in the community. Um, so I focus on housework there. There's also, um, like many women who um, didn't work outside the home, the women at Brook Farm um, were engaged in other projects in the home that were sort of, you know, remunerative, right? So um, some of the women in the community started sewing um, silk purses and um, other small items or, or doing um, little artwork, um, and those would be sent to Boston to be sold um, on the market there. And so the women immediately felt that that work was more valuable and valued than the work they did in the home and strove to make that as much of their work as possible, often by recruiting other women uh, to do more of the housework, right? Um, because they were, um, well, we can make these, you know, they called it their fancy groups. So they made little fancy things, fancy bags, fancy purses. Um, they, we will do our fancy group work more and more. And if we could just find some nice um, working class women with experience doing some hard domestic labor, that would free us up to do that. And wouldn't that be better for everybody? So in some ways they... Um, thought to be kind of included in the transcendental ideal. Um, But the women who were able to sort of achieve that were the more privileged women who were part of the founding group at Brook Farm. And the group as a whole worked to recruit working class men and women to sort of help with the labor that they found less tasteful, that they didn't have the actual skill to do, you know, um, that they perhaps had underestimated the, um, you know, the knowledge that one needed to succeed in these endeavors. So, um, so yeah, so that's, you know, sort of housework there. And then um, the, uh, the Harmony Society had the silk industry, like I said, that was run by Gertrude Rapp. And so that's 
huge, that was a huge revelation for me. I had no idea that silk culture. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it had this whole um, aura attached to it because silk was a fine good and had often been imported from Europe. And so it was part of sort of proving um, that America wasn't this backwoods <laughs> place dependent on Europe for its culture and its refinement, right? Um, because we can make our own silk um, and thus extrapolating outwards, you know, we can supply the finer things in life um, for ourselves. So that was very interesting. And also, I think, you know, from a rhetorical perspective, very savvy for an immigrant community and, and Gertrude Rapp, who really, um, you know, championed this endeavor to say, we're going to attach ourselves to this industry and we're going to succeed in this industry that is seen as, um, you know, upholding American pride um, because, you know, they're a German community, but Gertrude spoke English, but most of the members of the community um, didn't speak or write English. And so um, they were very, you know, clearly sort of other, they're very different. Um, And this was a way of sort of saying, you know, um, we're fighting for the American cause, you know, um, sort of thing. So, um, yeah, so that was very interesting. It was a chance to kind of think about um, what's happening during industrialization with these kinds of um, family or community-based endeavors like the silk industry, the Harmony Society, um, which then shuts down in the second half of the 19th century when the community is still going on, but the silk industry closes there as um, factories start taking up that kind of work more and more and these sort of hand spinning um, silk um, and other kinds of textile production being done in similar ways that other homes and communities um, couldn't keep up, you know, just couldn't compete um, in that regard. So they sort of proved it was doable here and then people made it doable faster, more efficiently, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Um, but yeah, so that was um, that was an interesting sort of yeah consideration uh, that really shows the transition from these more sort of um, local home kinds of production that the house really house production, but of course the Harmony Society was on a larger scale because it was communal. So it's really something in between the kind of home production families and individual women were doing around the country and then the factory system that came, you know, became dominant. How Um, does the Oneida Society fit into this framework? This is the one that I find most intriguing. (laughs) Uh, Well, that makes me glad I added it then. (laughs) Yeah, this one, um, the Oneida community, um, I focused initially on childcare in this community, and maybe just because of the really amazing sort of depth and um, richness of the archive, um, it was it was sort of difficult to only talk about one thing there because there was just so much. Um, and they're also a, a fairly uh, long lived community with a, a very large with a lot of members. So. Um, the, I started out looking at childcare because I thought this was also important work that isn't always counted as work. Um, and so, um, you know, I thought it, again, to, to keep sort of challenging 
this idea that work for pay is work or whatnot, you know, um, or work outside the home is real work. Um, so I started looking at childcare there because they um, had a practice of birth control called male continence. Um, and it was um, very successful um, as a mode of birth control. And the idea was um, that, you know, in the early years of the community, before they really had things up and running, they didn't want to have a lot of children that they couldn't care for um, and provide for. And then as they sort of moved along, the community progressed, it became really very well known for its wealth. Um, They, you know, they sort of loosened um, those practices and um, did start raising children. But they had, you know, a children's house where the children, you know, basically once they were weaned, they were sent to the children's house to live. Um, and they were sort of encouraged to interact with all the adults in the community as like role models and mentors and family members and not to have um, a particularly super tight, intimate connection with their biological parents. Um, And so there was this sense of, you know, communal child rearing that I was very interested in. Like, what does that mean for women's work? And of course, one of the things that means for women's work is when childcare is doesn't dominate women's work or when childcare and housework don't dominate women's work that women are more able to take on and explore other kinds of pursuits and women at Oneida do a wider are engaged in a wider range of industries than at any of the other communities I looked at Um, and not just while there are still some um, there was still some hierarchy and there were some individuals who were more privileged than others. Um, you know, it wasn't like at the Harmony Society where Gertrude Rapp is running the <laughs> the silk industry and all the other, you know, girls work for her. Right. It was sort of, um, you know, women kind of dispersed in finding what kind of work. Um, they were interested in. So a lot of them did do, you know, Oneida is a place where women might have been riveting and welding, right? So, um, you know, they did work in um, the trap shop, which eventually uh, the metal work they did making these animal traps was also is sort of what evolved into the um, cutlery silverware production um, that the Oneida Corporation still does today. Um, so that metal work um, stayed central to them. Um, And women were um, teachers and women um, were writers. They had a community newspaper. Um, Women were editors and, you know, copy editors, writers, publisher. You know, they had a lot of roles in that um, printing, um, in the printing office and in the newspaper. They, you know, they printed their own newspaper and also wrote content for it. so, and we have all of those. I mean, so again, the, the archival resources here, are, you know, you could keep going back to the Oneida sort of well many times as a scholar and not have exhausted oh, that's <laughs> fabulous. available resources. Yeah. So it's an exciting, I, are, I do have um, a chapter coming out in an edited collection that is me sort of going and exploring one of those paths with Oneida that I couldn't take for this book, um, which is a chapter... Um, it's in a book on reproductive rhetoric, so it makes sense. Um, and because of 
the my initial interest really sparking from that method of birth control. I was just fascinated that one of the early advocates for birth control was the male leader of this utopian community, you know, um, and that um, the later birth control movement really um, gave credit to Oneida and Noyes, the leader, as an inspiration, you know, for for the birth control efforts more broadly. Um, so I, that was so interesting to me. But then in the book, I kind of have to move pretty swiftly from just quickly going through the nuts and bolts of the birth control and then getting to what were the consequences for, for women in their work, um, because already there's so much to say about that, um, that I didn't get to spend as much time on sort of the birth control itself. And so, um, and, and, you know, what that meant for women and what it meant for women who um, wanted children in that era where the community was sort of saying, we're not ready to support them, or women who um, were less privileged in the community hierarchy and thus were not deemed to be fit to become mothers. Um, this is like the, um, the eugenic sort of implicit ideals of the community that later become ex an explicit eugenic project. Um, so I, I was glad because I tried in the book to acknowledge this sort of the control happening at Oneida around um, sexuality and parenting, um, but also acknowledging at the same time some of the things that women were freed to freed up to do um, due to those restrictions. And then this other chapter is sort of. Um, you know, exploring in a little more detail, um, the sort of more, some of the more shadowy aspects of what was going on here, right? Because there are some pretty horrific sort of stories. So oh, once I didn't have to try to tell the whole story of women's work in the community, I was like free to do a little bit more um, with that kind of darker aspect there. So oh, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, how is it you think that that these communities are defined as failures? I mean, each of them undertakes something that they think is plausible and doable. And yet you talk in the book about the fact that they're failures. Mm -hmm. Well, this is interesting. I mean, um, my sense is that um, this term in part becomes associated with utopianism with that kind of turn to dystopia that I talked about early in our conversation. And so um, I think that there has been a tendency um, that, that and maybe more a popular than a scholarly tendency, really, like a popular tendency to sort of say like, well, that would never work. Or like a celibate community, like what, what's that? That's just going to die out, you know, like what, you know, and so there's this idea that continuation is the goal, you know, that like continuation and stasis are the goal, right? To carry on living. Like if you decided to live in a certain way, well, are people still living that way now? No, of course not. It could have never worked, you know? Um, and so it's really that mindset that I wanted to challenge um, but there is a sense that these communities, um, there's something about like, oh, these people wanted to live this way. And then there's sort of an immediate um, sort of hunger to hear like, well, when did it go bad? Because I know it must, have, you know, kind of idea. And I say it's popular more than scholarly. And I think that's true. I do think we're... Um, 
pessimistic about utopian thought and um, utopian programs um, right now. And, you know, for some um, very reasonable, um, justifiable reasons. Um, But I do also think that that sort of um, there has been a, also in people who study these communities a, a little bit of a preoccupation with sort of when it broke down, you know, um, which I think is natural, you know, like that obviously like founding a community is a big deal and dissolving a community is a big deal. So sometimes those points get the most attention um, and the middle is a little bit, you know, um, lost. So um, so those are some of the things I was trying to speak to there. Um, and particularly, you know, just wanting to think about like what is lost when we fixate on what might seem like an inevitable failure, whereas it like seems what's inevitable is change, you know? So inevitably these communities changed as society at large has changed, you know? Um, But yeah, but you know, a lot of these, you know, so it's just about trying to sort of take a more nuanced understanding of what these communities were going for and that like all of us, like they were trying to survive, you know, so the Brook Farm community or the Harmony Society in particular is a group of um, German immigrants, many of whom don't speak the language. They don't know the country. They don't, you know, and they, um, their chances of survival as immigrants in this nation were better banded together. Right. Um, So, yeah. So I think, um, Yeah. So I think that, you know, this idea that the goal was, um, you know, sort of to be for them to be here in 2022 living as they were in 1848 is not is not something we should put on them and that we should say, you know, these are people adapting to an environment um, and a time and sort of getting getting through their lives, trying to do something with their lives like we all are. you know, and change is inevitable. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was thinking about with the failure idea. In what way do you think these are not failed communities? Hmm. I think they are not failed communities in so far as I think they have an outsized impact on the society around them. Um, And so, like I talked about with the United Community and birth control, right? Um, You know, I'm less interested in whether, I mean, Noyes really believed in birth control and wanted to, um, you know, he believed in it. I sometimes wonder if he believed in it for the sort of women's liberation ends he would sometimes talk about or whether he believed in it more as an end to his own goals. <laughs> um, but he believed in it very deeply. So he would be, I think, gratified to know that he was an influence for the birth control movement moving forward. And he might see that as a success. But even if he didn't see that as a success, I think we you know, can look at that as a success and say, um, these communities experimented in ways that helped other people think of what was possible in a new way and sort of expand the boundaries of the possible, particularly in questions surrounding gender 
uh, and work. So, um, you know, the Brook Farm community had one of the first kindergartens um, in the U.S. Um, and and was a force behind um, that sort of evolution. Um, the Harmony Society, as I talked about, was used, um, you know, at, at the federal level as an example of the kinds of production that could be successful and were worth investing in in the U.S. Um, and that women could be part of that work was also t- um, testified before Congress, right? So, um, you know, so I think that the, uh, a- again, that these communities, partly because at the time anyway, and though the Harmony Society is um, is is not well known at all today, at the time, these communities were such objects of curiosity that people, they made people sort of speak, well, would I do that? You know, could I live that way? Or, or is that right? Or can that be right? Or, you know, and they, they um, sparked sort of lines of thought um, and possibilities for the people around them. So in that sense, I think they're very much um, a success. I, you know, I, I sort of, um, yeah, I want to kind of think about success in a different way than sort of narrowly, like what did these people set out to do? And and, and I want to think of success in a broader way of like, what did they make possible um, for other people? You know, what, what was that kind of legacy, regardless of whether they wanted it to be their legacy? <laughs> <laughs> How does an exploration of these communities um extend our understanding of the way work is configured in terms of race and gender and class. That's an interesting part of the book as well. Mm -hmm. I think um, one of the recurring threads in the book is that when women and here in these communities, these were mostly white middle sometimes upper class women, um, when, yeah, when, when those kinds of women, um, agitate for increased rights, for increased access to particular careers and to education, um, with men, right, it becomes this sort of trade-off where their gains, um, in that sort of battle of the genders, if we want to think of it that way, but their gains to realms previously controlled by or dominated by men um, sort of requires or at least occasioned <laughs> in these cases a, a delegation of work that was seen as less valuable to poorer women to working class women and to women of color. And so this is a strand through all the communities. And really it started um, for me when I was looking at Brook Farm and I found mention of one of those working class women who I said, you know, they had recruited to the community um, being like sent back home because she wasn't working hard enough or something, which never seemed to happen to the upper class women. Apparently, no, they of course not. 
they all did their work and didn't complain. But this woman is sent home with a pretty damning letter from Ripley, the, the male founder of the community, the Ripley, um, George and Sophia Ripley founded the community together. But George Ripley sort of sent this woman back home and said, like, she is not what you promised us. We expected a hardy granite state girl. Um, and she, you know, and the more delicate women do not complain of these, <laughs> of these labors. So um, I then started thinking when I saw that dynamic at play in the Brook Farm community, I was kind of on the lookout because it took me a while to find that it wasn't until there's a Sterling um, Delano, who's a great Brook Farm scholar, um, had pointed me to a piece where he documented every extant letter we have from a woman who is at Brook Farm. And, you know, I, I had thought I knew most of this story. And then when I found, I found a letter from her to her family about how she felt that there was still a hierarchy and an aristocracy at play in the community. And then I found the letter from George Ripley sort of firing this woman who wasn't officially a worker there, but, you know, was a, a boarder who worked in exchange for her education. And he said, like, she's not working hard enough. We're sending her home. Um, and so that made me think like, wow, what if I had, and that changed how I saw the work of the women in the fancy group, you know, it became not just sort of, oh, they found this work that's more, um, that they like more, that they appreciate more than their housework. It was like, they, like, you know, society is valuing work for the market over this domestic subsistence labor. And they're now trying to figure out well, who can do that work for us so that we can be freed up to do this other kind of work? And that's, of course, the kind of mindset of women staying at home so men can go out to work, right, that we've seen um, in gender relations. So what I saw was that kind of replication, except rather than it being between the genders, it was between different kinds of women. And that's, you know, one of the... Um, sort of sad parts of this project was realizing how often um, those divides, those gender divides about what kinds of work is valued and not, rather than revaluing the work, we redistribute it, <laughs> you know, and we don't redistribute it evenly across people, everyone, we redistribute it to certain classes and kinds and types of women. However, those are defined, they're defined differently, you know, for different communities and in different groups, but um, but I saw similar things happening with Oneida with um, finding they had like start they had a head housekeeper and like nobody, you know, they used to take turns doing that position because they knew it was really it's really hard work. So the women just traded it off like it's thankless. It's hard. It's stressful. Um, but then this new woman who'd had professional work as a domestic servant joins the community and turns out she's just really well suited to this position. And so she becomes the permanent one and they hire um, black laundresses to come in and do their laundry once a week. And they, you know, and so as soon as they're able, these more affluent women are paying or um, whatever means they have, you know, making I mean, the situation we're living and working in this community might still have been better than domestic service in other households outside this community. So uh, women may have been willing to do that work because in a lot of ways, Oneida was a good employer compared to other options women had. But 
they weren't going to be on the same level, obviously, as the women in the community working in the printing house, right? <laughs> um, and similar things happened in the Harmony Society as well. Uh, there's some really troubling stuff in the Harmony Society about sort of a um, trade in German maids at the time, right? And people sort of um, these wealthier German um, communities wanting to hire German maids because it's easier to communicate with them and sort of like having their ear to the ground in terms of like, when has a new sort of shipment of immigrants arrived? And can we like, who is it? We're going to send you one and you send us, you know, there's a um, very, um, you know, so yeah, so that that was a recurring theme here was this sort of um you know, improving things for women meant improving things for some women, often at the cost of other women. (laughs) Right. And so these are the configurations that then shape industrial work in this country, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's this sense that, um, you know, the story of labor and industrialization certainly does have an impact on gender roles, but I left the project feeling like maybe even more significant is the change in relations among women that divide between the lady and the domestic or the domestic and the factory worker and these sort of classes of women. And of course, in more recent times, we've also seen women um, divided by whether their work where their work occurs, really, (laughs) Um, you know, so um, I really um, sort of see that tracing back to this historical moment. Yeah, that continues to dog feminism right Mm -hmm. into the contemporary period. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Let me ask you one last thing. Um, This phrase, ecologies of gender, I that was very intriguing to me. And I'm not exactly sure what you meant by it. Okay. Um, In um, rhetorical studies, we um, have sort of embraced ecological methodologies for research. And so, um, you know, rather than studying texts um, or language kind of in isolation, attempting to trace the interactions between um, texts and um, material factors, objects, technologies, etc. Um, and so um, I, you know, the work I do is very much um, inspired by those kinds of ecological views of, of rhetoric as sort of, um, you know, part of this bigger network and context, not sort of above or apart from it, right? Not sort of, um, there's language, and then there's what was really happening. It's like, we try to, you know, collapse that distinction a little bit in that more sort of ecological model. Um, And then as I was working and thinking about rhetorics of gender, um, it struck me that in fact, I'm interested in thinking about gender in that way as well. Um, that gender um, is, of course, as feminism, you know, has said for a long time, right? Not sort of an innate or essential thing, but it's it's um, something that's produced, constructed, um, and the ecological aspect there with ecologies of gender. I'm, you know, trying to say that sort of it's produced and constructed in tension with 
um, a lot of other factors, right? Including, as we were talking about that, you know, you can't look at constructions of gender and sort of set aside race or class or that you can't look at constructions of gender and not look at, um, you know, um, what's happening like like the changes associated with industrialization, with urbanization, et cetera, right? Um, so, you know, that's sort of the, con- the, the basic concept of what I'm going for there um, is that sort of, you know, um, the, the interaction that kind of um, produces a particular construct of gender in a certain moment. Um, Fascin- fascinating methodology. Well, I think I've taken up enough of your time, and it's about time for me to let you go. But before I do, uh, what do you ha- have going on now? What are you working on next? So I'm, um, I've done a little bit of work um, looking at gendered labor in the context of World War II. Um, and so my next project, um, I, I am anticipating a project um, spinning out from some work I've done around the Rosie the Riveter image um, and our sort of popular misunderstanding of that image as having been part of the methods used to recruit women into the factory, whereas actually the poster was um, a work incentive poster in a factory meant to get women who were all women and men who were already at work to keep working and not go on strike and not fight with <laughs> their, their supervisors. So um, it's very, you know, so I'm, I'm just really... Um, when I learned about this misunderstanding, I was like, but I know that that poster was used to get women to go to the factory. And it's like, how do I know that? I think I know this thing, but in fact, it's wrong. So I can't know it. And when was I taught that anyway? I don't really remember it being part of my curriculum. You know, I've sort of just imbibed this understanding um, from the culture around me. So I'm really interested in looking at um, you know, the role this this particular poster did play, which was a pretty small, um, you know, role actually in a Pittsburgh factory. So Pittsburgh is a constant in my research. <laughs> um, and then the image disappears for decades and then is unearthed, we think, in the early 90s um, from um, the National Archives as, um, you know, as part of a sort of like feminist moment at that time, right, and sort of a sign of what women had done in the past, and then got this kind of um, the attribution of having been a recruitment poster or whatever, um, attached to it at that point in the the 1990s, um, and of course, has only taken off since there. So I'm really interested in the work that this image does around narratives of gendered labor, you know, women leaving the home to go to work, right? Um, That kind of idea, um, and why we needed this icon badly enough to invent it (laughs) when it it wasn't necessarily readily available. So um, that's that's what I'm looking at next. Oh, good luck with that. That sounds like a wonderful project. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, well, I shall let you go, Michelle. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. Great to be here.